childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, where we talk about baseball and how it intersects with social justice and politics and have people from all sorts of backgrounds, but all geniuses, talking about these topics, including me. And we wanted to start today... One of our favorite things to do is uh, talk about Texas and uh, how brilliant its leadership is. And they have decided in Texas that they are not going to uh, require masks for anything. And so the uh, owners of the Texas Rangers have decided that's a, a good uh, way to have 100% capacity at its opening day game. So they're really, really into super spreader events. I wanted to ask about this also, not just to rail on Texas, but well, yeah, to rail on Texas, but also to talk about um, in the larger context, what different teams are doing, because I know the team I live next to, the Washington Nationals are not planning on having any fans so far. So what do we make of that? Craig, do you have an overview of uh, where baseball is at and teams are at with how they're making these decisions and what they've decided? Uh, yeah, um, as we stand here right now, as we're recording this on uh, March 11th, about 25 of the 30 teams have been approved by either states or cities to have some level of fans in the stands. Most of them are very small proportions, you, you know, 10% capacity, 15% capacity, some of 20% capacity. The Rangers are the only team so far who has gone to a full house because they're insane. Um, there are a few pen- pending uh uh decisions on on teams the the twins i believe might still be in a, a limbo where they have proposed that they'll have 10 or 15 percent the, they're waiting on hearing back from local government right now washington and baltimore i believe are the only two that have actually had affirmative pushback from uh local authorities on having anybody in the stands my guess is that when opening day hits almost every team with the exception of maybe one or two will have some level of fans in the stands and if the Rangers are any uh, example and baseball's history of racing to the bottom is any example, we might have more with uh, 30 or 40,000 fans. Yeah, I guess they'll test people after the opening day game at the Rangers stadium and, and see uh, if there how many people got COVID. But they are also planning on not are they they're not having 100 percent after that. It's just the last spring training game and the first opening day home game. And after that, they're right. going to have some other percentage because because the, the, the disease because the covid goes away on that day i, I understand it's a <laughs> national holiday for covid you can you can say you have 100 percent capacity you still have to sell every ticket right and and the rangers you know the rangers yeah it's I, also but, texas but also the they've got a new ballpark that local fans haven't gone to yet that they've been hyping up uh they they had some fans there for the world series and the nlcs last year but no rangers fans We've got a year of pent up whatever, and we've got a culture that exists in a healthy portion of this country of 
I never would have thought to go to a ball game, but since they said it's a bad idea for us to do so, we're damn it, we're going to go. So I think between the uh, you know the the sort of anti-mask crowd, the we're over this and we just want to get back to normality crowd um and the opening day new ballpark hype it wouldn't shock me if they actually sell out on opening day now what you mentioned tova the whole uh it's only for the one day thing this is what makes it very clearly a financial play on their part because in the normal course i think they know that they would not sell out beyond opening day so what they've promoted now is they're going to have special after opening day they're going to have limited capacity and special sections of distanced fans uh, that my guess is you'll be paying a premium for if you want to have a little area to yourself, uh, which suggests to me that finances and money are dictating this, not safety concerns, or else you wouldn't have the opening day free-for-all. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with Craig. This is Frank uh, Garitti. I, I think they've got to get a good crowd uh, for all the reasons that you laid out, the new ballpark, the the strong, vehement um, uh, attitude against restrictions that have been, you know, stoked up by Republican Party uh, anti-government uh, white grievance politics, which dominates in Texas, certainly dominates in Arlington. You know, Arlington is, uh, you know, where the where the the new ballpark is, where the old ballpark was, and where the current Dallas Cowboys uh, stadium is, AT and T Stadium. You know, Arlington, had, you know, made itself into this sport entertainment complex going back to the 1960s, uh, and then when the Raiders came and were stolen from Washington D.C. in 1972, when Bob Short moves them there. Uh, so it's very consistent with the with the history of sport in the role of the political economy of that region of the Dallas Fort region, Fort Worth region in particular, Arlington, and it and and, it, and it's in line with the the politics that we've seen in the state, uh, not just with the mask mandate ending, but also with the power outage and water outage disaster that we saw a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, I I I would be surprised if they didn't get a good turnout on opening day. I would be surprised if they don't get a good turnout on opening day too, just for all those reasons. I was saying after that. It makes sense not to keep it because they won't be selling all the tickets after that just because, you know, they're the Rangers. Uh, a point I, I would make here, and I don't want to spend too much time attacking Texas. It is one of my 50 favorite states, and I think we should be a little fair about this. But a point I, I want to make is that, you know, there are, as we've talked about on this series over and over, other people who will be put at risk because of this. And MLB could make a policy. They're not going to, for all the reasons Craig outlined. But just because they're not going to, doesn't mean we shouldn't raise the issue that they could, and they frankly probably should. Well, the interesting part here is their opponent is the Toronto Blue Jays, which is a team that is without a home because they can't play in Canada. To the extent you're going to hear uh, you know, dissent here, you're probably going to hear it from, from Ontario. Um, I don't think you'll hear it from the players. I, I have this feeling that MLB and everybody is going to tell them to zip it. But, but a super spreader event for an industry that relies on travel is, is, is a bad idea for, for many reasons. And all, all, my point is, is not that I would expect MLB to do this, but we should note that they could. That it's oh, yeah. not just the, the leadership of the Texas Rangers yeah. and, and the state of Texas, but it's all of MLB who's complicit in this. By the way, I mean, I have to say, because um, you know the governor of California is being recalled because California has been slightly better than most states on COVID. And Greg Abbott is, you know, thinking of running for president. And that that, that is a real help us. we are in this country. Well, he's going to have to battle against Ted Cruz, of course, if he's going to go to be president. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Ted Cruz with his Texas Rangers cap at opening day. And if he can break away from Mexico. He's going to be in Cancun that day. He'll be wearing a Rangers hat. But, you know, this is all – this goes back to our very first webinar when we were talking about should baseball even be starting – 
And we talked about how everything baseball was doing was very emblematic of the whole national debate and discussion about COVID and what to do. And uh, it's being left up to the states and localities and the teams to do whatever the hell they want without any direction from baseball, which is, you know, there, there was, we had a lot of discussions about that at the beginning too. It's true. And, and it needs to be framed properly. And I think, unfortunately, because of who was president at that time, the possibility of a unifying message has been forever lost. And it's, it's the framing that's at issue because the people, it's not a question of, of your personal choice as to wear a, a mask or not, or even to show up for this. It's who else is dragooned into it with you. And if, if you remember the debates on secondhand smoke in the late 1980s, early 90s, when it became uh, medical evidence became persuasive that secondhand smoke was a carcinogen. It was it was something that could kill someone who had never been a smoker if they were just immersed in that environment all the time. And that's when we began to see smoking sections disappear from restaurants in a lot of the country and from offices. You couldn't smoke in your office. You had to go outside. And even in some cities, they said, no, you can't stand in front of the building and puff up a big cloud of smoke because it's a, a public hazard to people who don't choose to smoke. You were making people who were not smokers smokers without ever asking for their permission to do that. The coronavirus is really the same damn thing in a sense, in that if you are a person going about without a mask and the possibility of being infected, you are breathing out these particles all the time. And someone who would not have chosen to interface with you on that basis is is pulled into it. Well, who staffs Rangers games? It's going to be lower income people who are behind the counters at the hot dog stands and so on. And what and, and people who are restaurateurs and bar owners and so on in Texas have pointed this out. What the state has really done here is thrown them under the bus because they are now in the position of saying, yeah, I don't care if Greg Abbott says there's no mask mandate. We would like you to not come into our bar and breathe on us. And then people tend to get irate, as we've seen in viral videos over and over and over again. Well, my rights, my rights, my rights. That's a, their rights or their perception thereof is a whole other thing. But if you are someone who needs that job, with the Rangers, and you are there to stand there at the counter as someone says, I would like the personal pizza, two brats, and uh, and a couple of beers, you're vulnerable. That's true. If you have 20% capacity, too, you're still going to have these people working there, I presume, selling hot dogs and beer. This, to me, I mean, the, there was a time when the Republican Party spoke of themselves as the party of individual responsibility, right? It was never, I don't think it was ever serious then, but it's really not serious now. Because it's not just Greg Abbott. Every individual who goes to that game unmasked, sits in a crowd, knowing that's what they're doing. I'm talking about a fan now, not someone who's working there, is knowingly killing fellow Americans. 500,000 plus Americans have died, and a lot fewer would have died if people had followed these rules. Not only are they killing Americans, but they are free riding on the people who have kept the disease from getting too rampant because they've wear, worn masks. And because they've social distanced, not just at Rangers games, but, you know, throughout this period. And that is another reason why the divisions in this country are going to be so difficult to sew back together. Because one side cavalierly was complicit in murdering a lot of people because their cult leader told them so. And, you know, go Rangers. Well, can I just ask you if you're, you're saying this just about the 100% capacity situation or also you're objecting to 20 or 30% capacity. Well, I'm saying this more broadly about people who have people who've said, you know, my personal freedom, I'm not wearing a mask, right? I think 
at, at the ball games, you know, I, I would like to see the Major League Baseball to set some kind of, you know, floor, right? You can't go over 40% or whatever it's going to be. It does vary from place to place. And some, you know, some states where they're starting with 20%, I mean, you know, California, there are five teams, they may go up to 30 I think you can manage that reasonably well with precaution. So I wouldn't say start with no fans and stay there. But I would say err on the side of caution and don't even float the idea of full ballparks until our vaccination, excuse me, our vaccination rate is much, much higher than it is now. So I would say no team should have a full ballpark right now and probably no team a quarter or more for a while. And partial capacity, you know, reduced capacity, you know, you know, lowers the risk. But, you know, as we're saying here, you know, and, and regardless of where the what ballpark you're talking about, whether it's Arlington, Texas or Yankee Stadium or City Field, the people who do the work of these ballparks are low income people of color yeah. or the concessionaires. I mean, the, one of the things that strikes you when you go to a Yankee Stadium is that the, the people who of color who are there are either the players or the concessionaires, uh, the people working security, right? Uh, and that's a that's a that's a feature of modern, you know, ballpark uh, scenes in recent years. And so, you know, it, you know, as we've seen over and over again, the people who will be more at risk are the people who are going to be working there. Now, ironically, uh, the Giants solved this problem in the mid nineteen seventies because they never had more than five thousand people. <laughs> well, that's the joke about the Marlins, too, right? <laughs> Well, if it's an open air stadium too, I think that's probably a low capacity crowd and open air is probably safer than yeah. a, a large crowd in a dome. But even then you have the concourses, you have the backup at the security line. Those are places when you're you're going to get immersed. But Craig, I, I have a, a legal question, probably a, a naive one, but on the back of the tickets, it generally says that you assume the risk of, of getting a foul ball in the face. Now we've seen in recent years, and that's why there's netting all over the parks now, that that license doesn't necessarily protect the ball clubs from being sued for negligence should you get hit by that ball in the face. Now, if we all go to the ballpark and, gosh, we're unlucky enough to contract COVID, assuming we live through the experience, can we sue the team for putting us in that environment? Probably not, because uh, they're going to say you assume that risk, and it was a well-known risk. I think the the more interesting question is going to be what we're talking about. You know, if I if I'm a concessionaire, if I if I'm selling beer and hot dogs and stuff like that, and I'm given a choice of getting fired or uh, or showing up in a dangerous workplace situation, uh, you know, I take that case. Well, I, so just to show off that I did go to law school, also you would have to prove that that was how you got the COVID. Was that yeah, the game, you know, the proximate cause or whatever I'm remembering from many years well, ago? Well, my brother still wants me to go to law school, so should I weigh in on this? <laughs> well, <laughs> my, my guess is that there's, I mean, I haven't paid that much attention to it. Has there been a bunch of COVID litigation yet? Probably not. No. Um, there, there's going to be some massive, uh, you know, uh, liability uh, waiver for the whole world that, no one's people are going to come up with interesting class action uh covid theories here and uh, they're all probably going to go away well that's what mitch mcconnell remember he was holding up a whole lot of stuff last year trying to get that get out of jail free card it didn't happen it may yet happen in the future i don't know but as i tell anyone i i used to tell my clients this and i tell people that ask me legal advice too and tova i'm sure you have told all manner of people who have asked you the same thing uh there's you know there's recklessness as a matter of law and recklessness. And just because someone can't sue doesn't mean this isn't reckless. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just the same thing. Is there something that's not legally actionable, but something that's just unconscionable? And I think it's absolutely unconscionable that the Texas Rangers are so blatantly 
going after some bucks here on opening day, uh, completely ignoring everything we know about good science. And this is this is beyond just like should I wear a mask if I if I'm walking out on the sidewalk. I mean, as an institution, Major League Baseball is locked down in a lot of very important ways to the point where they're isolating players who go and get a haircut, to where they are sanctioning players if they go eat indoors at a taco cabana. And we have a situation here where on the one hand, the same day that opening day happens, we're going to have 40 some thousand people at a ballpark with major league baseball's imprimatur and approval. And we're probably going to have some player that's on the COVID list because he did something wrong against some very, very important uh, enforced rule that major league baseball cares about. It's just ridiculous that they have that double standard and it's transparent what it's about. Well, and I think the other thing that we're going to see in the very soon next couple of weeks, perhaps, or is that state legislators are going to pass laws that are going to protect teams from having to deal with, you know, exposure for COVID. And in fact, you know, this is the same way that you have state legislators who are trying to stop college athletes from protesting at their uh, basketball games. And, And, you know, so in certain states, Texas, perhaps, Ohio, perhaps, you're going to see people introduce bills to protect the Cleveland team from, you know, having too many people try to sue them, or more importantly, having the workers suing the team because they provide employment, and all of a sudden, Obamacare might come back up as part of the discussion of how do you get protected, go use your health insurance. We also have eight of the major, more than a quarter, eight of the major league teams playing either Massachusetts, New York, or California, which have very big Democratic majorities. And the Republican governor in Massachusetts, but, you know, uh, not not a radical right-winger at all. And those states could also pass laws that could make this difficult. I mean, in the past, you know, uh, California has had policies on capacity for baseball and football that the leagues have not always loved. So, you know, this could, there, there are other states that have other tools here. I don't know how that shakes out with regards to something like this, but they could say, you know, you can't go to a, play in front of a full stadium and Texas, then come back to Oakland or, you know, Anaheim. I should probably know this better than anyone, but is it just the states who have authority over this or do the cities also, are they part of the decision-making process on this? I believe cities are. Isn't that what's holding it? Well, Washington, obviously, but yeah, I, think no. Balt- I think Baltimore is We can is have a that conversation. Thing. Well, my sense is that the state has a policy and the states, again, if the state puts in a floor, right? Mm. So and it so you know the state can do something here and then you know De Blasio could say you know this is that and then he could fight with Andrew Cuomo which would be like the last decade. <laughs> but in the Texas case, I'm pretty sure that the the state overrules. I mean, because I mean, you mentioned this earlier. A lot of the people who protested Abbott's decision to remove the mask um, uh, mandate were restaurant owners, right? Uh, and and other and folks, you know, I mean, the whole state is in red. This this state is gerrymandered red, voter suppressed red, right? So there are plenty of folks in Texas who don't like this at all. Including business owners, right? Not, not the. We're not even talking about people who are advocates of, for the laboring majority of the state. We're talking about folk who run businesses who are actually this, this is a real complicated issue for them. And Austin, I think, has a mask mandate, and the state legislature is trying to overturn that. Yep. Oh, so they did overturn it. So they could. So the city doesn't make the decision. Well, they, in that have, case. they have to either pass a law to overturn it, or they have to sue them, or something. Same thing with like Dane County, Wisconsin, which is a blue county in a purple state that's been gerrymandered red. The the other point here is that number of these baseball towns like the Atlanta Braves are not in Atlanta you know and so you know you have a number of the teams that their town where they actually play is not the major city 
that's associated with the name of the team. And so the local city legislature and like what town are is the Atlanta team actually in now? Is it in Cobb County? Cobb County? No, it's Gwinnett County. No, no, they're, no, no, they're in Cobb County. They're in they're, Cobb their County. minor league team is in Gwinnett County, but the team is in Cobb County. I think the mailing address is actually Atlanta. It's one of those weird annexed areas, but I, I think it's outside of the city limits and it's under the authority of Cobb County. Because we had the mayor of Atlanta, you know, going at it with the governor in, in Georgia over the mask mandates and what to do about COVID. And, you know, that's going to play out. And most of the local places, they're going to... Most of the towns will let the teams do because they want the money. Welcome back to the quickest podcast ever brought to you by Kohl's. Today's topic, fall style. Wait, wasn't it just June, right? So I went to Kohl's. Of course you did. I got a cute Kara Santana for Nine West sweater for 25% off and a great pair of Vans. Love Vans. And save 25% on a champion hoodie for my husband. Ooh, sounds cozy. You should go. You'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with Hotcakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes requiere la descarga y registro. Speaking of Atlanta, the other topic that we were going to have a discussion about today is that uh, is that of team names. And of course, Atlanta is still the Braves. There is no discussion, I don't think, of changing the name, which we can give Craig grief about since he's a Braves fan, from what I can tell. But also, of course, Cleveland, which has already said that they are not going to use the Indians name, but they are for this. And what we all think about those decisions and uh, some of the other team issues around naming. Can we just start with ancient history that neither of those teams has the slightest relationship with Native Americans in any way, shape or form that the Braves over a hundred years ago now were owned. They were relentlessly owned by New Yorkers for reasons that are kind of hard to understand. And one of the early owners of the Braves was actually a Tammany Hall guy. And the Tammany Hall Democratic Organization in New York like to model themselves after Native Americans. So they're the Tammany Braves. They're not the Boston Braves in in the sense, any sense of Native American tribes that live there. The history of of Native American tribes in in the New England area is not great. We could talk about the Pequot War and and what happened to those guys was an antagonistic relationship. So they're honoring, so to speak, their their supposed homage to the original possessors of this continent is bull and always has been. It's retroactive. And of course, uh, the Cleveland team, they were the Broncos. They were the Naps for Nap Lajway. They came upon this name sort of, again, retroactively and retroactively assigned it to Lusak Alexis, who was this Native American player who was with them briefly very early on. It was purely a marketing thing. And the logo that fortunately we're at least done with that 
the the caricature of a, a logo was also purely a marketing ploy. Once again, it had nothing to do with any respect for the groups that they claim to be embracing. Well, and the the change of the name is is being characterized by marketing. Um, the the Cleveland Baseball Club does not is not changing its name because it has decided that it believes it's offensive. It's doing it because it's it's succumbing to to public pressure. It it reluctantly got rid of Chief Wahoo logo, the racist Chief Wahoo logo. It is reluctantly changing its name because it knows which way the wind is blowing. It could have done what the Washington football team did and immediately said, once it came to this decision, whatever the reason for the decision, it could have said, we are dropping the name. We're going to be the Cleveland Baseball Club until we come up with something else. But no, it didn't do that. It's keeping the name through 2021, partially because it falsely believes that it has to have a name this year. Uh, but you know, partially to sell merchandise still, get your get your Indians gear while you still have it, while we still have it and can sell it as a, the official name of the team, but also because it wants a big rollout. It wants to take a few months and go through the focus groups and buy the intellectual property and buy the internet domains and everything else to get its name lined up for, for 2021. My prediction is that they will announce a new name in November or December because that's when that happens, right before the holiday buying season. And uh, that's when they'll unveil unveil their new identity. They could have just dropped it this year, but they're not. That just tells you again, it's, they were dragged into this. This is not a matter of conscience for them. But of course they were dragged into this. I mean, I mean, th- that, that to me is axiomatic, right? There's not a lot of billionaires saying, you know, I made my billions and after several years I've come to this revelation. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if they were dragged into it. I mean, I, I can never know people's motives. I can only know their actions. Their actions here are not entirely compelling for exactly the reasons you outlined, right? I mean, how hard is it to be the Clevelands for a year, right? Which is, you know, that looks good in newspaper headlines. Cleveland's dropped two to the Yankees today. That sounds fine. It's, <laughs> or do it like no soccer, Cleveland BC. Come on. That's BBC. that's what I'm probably going to do on my right. site. Exactly. <laughs> this is the, one of the rare occasions where Daniel Snyder's Washington football club looks better than another organization. I mean, this that's how that's how pathetic this situation is. With yeah, the, the bar is so team. low. I mean, Snyder fought that for years. And then when he finally gave up, then he's getting plaudits and, and laudits and whatever it's you have to uh, for how he handled it. So it, it, the bar is low. The Indians could have handled this so easily and they screwed it up see you did it you did it just then <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds like cleveland told snyder hold my beer <laughs> <laughs> hold my 10 cent beer night and that was another one where the owner george preston marshall was an arch racist and named yeah. the team almost pointedly to draw exactly the kind of reaction that it took decades but ultimately that they got. I mean, there there was just no. It was it was unlike uh, the other teams. There there was no pretense of we're acknowledging what came before. No, he just wanted to tick people off, and they clung to it tenaciously. And and you know that the the thing that we've seen too is when teams redesign, they get a huge boost. All the White Sox had to do is go to silver and black in the in the late 1980s, and suddenly they were the hot team. When the NBA went to Toronto, then they had purple and black, and suddenly everyone was wearing purple and black. It doesn't even matter what you choose as long as you do it in at least a half-decent way. Look what happened when the Yankees went to pinstripes in <laughs> Babe Ruth got thinner, magically. Magically, but they started being very good. Only Lincoln remembers that because of the age, but yeah. This is the thing that, that's striking to me in both cases. In the Texas case, the mass mandate, the removal of the capacity limits, and in this case, you know, Craig, you're exactly right. It's obvious that the, the, the franchise is making this economic calculation to keep the name this year and to you know prolong the process and mac- maximize profit. But there's this other element here, which is to sort of kowtow and, and cater 
to the white grievance politics people, right? And, and many of these, and many of these, um, of these owners are belong to that group. There's this sense of like, we're going to do this reluctantly. We're going to let you know we're doing it reluctantly. We don't give a damn about mass mandates. We're doing that because that's the line of the Republican Party. We're going to pay, you know, we're going to pay our homage to that sort of line of politics, and that drives this decision making as much as an economic uh, argument. Uh, in both cases, it seems to me, like we, we obviously the Republican Party is a pro business, pro corporate entity, but the the kind of centrality of white supremacist politics to the party right now make make the decision making, you know, based on both, uh, you know, I think both elements of the calculus. And, and part of that calculus, Frank, is that is that for those folks. The idea of doing something because a bunch of people of color went to the streets and demanded it boils their blood so much. It absolutely it totally plugs into that kind of white grievance sentiment. So they're putting this off for a year just to kind of insult the people who want the change one last time. So that Al Michaels, you know, the, the famous broadcaster, I think he said this during the playoff game of the Washington when the when the Washington team made the playoffs last year, you know they were kind of narrating them as a, over, overcoming all these adversities. Uh, you know the, the head coach had cancer; they had to overcome the fact that they lost their name, and they still made the playoffs. Right? I mean that was that was Al Michaels' line on a broadcast, uh, you know, last fall. And we're going to hear versions of that this year if, if the Cleveland team does well. Look at the adversity they're overcoming. Well, trading away their best player also—that's part of the adversity too. Well, of course, you know the adversity. They, they had to trade Lindor away last year. They had. Is police still on Cleveland? But but Adrian, the reason they had to trade Lindor was because the Black Lives Matter. Uh, absolutely. Can we talk about Dr. Seuss as part of this? Because <laughs> I think what <laughs> what Frank said was very well observed about just finding every excuse <laughs> not to give an inch, even when it is just so painfully obvious. At least I, I, if you stop and think about it at all, what's you know a private copyright holder is saying? I choose not to have this particular book out there, which happens right. every day. That no one reads anyway, because five of those Dr. Seuss books, no one reads anyway. It's only the book Mulberry Street that gets any. I mean, if those of who have kids or nieces or nephews and you read Dr. Seuss, you're not reading. You read Cat in the Hat, this one, that one, maybe Mulberry Street if you really want to go old school. But, you know, like he's written 50 books. 40, 44 of them are still out there. Ninety nine percent of all books ever written are not in print. All of us may have books that are out of print now. Yeah, exactly. I've been in the remainder bin. That's right. not a, an unusual thing. That's that's capitalism. If it's not a, a viable thing for them to sell, they're not going to sell it. If they thought they could, they would. I really didn't anticipate going in this direction, but that's sure. often the case with this group. I, I wanted to ask, though, how it is that Atlanta, the Atlanta Braves seem to have dipped under the radar on this issue and not gotten the grief that Cleveland has, especially given even worse than the names, the Braves themselves, I think probably everyone thinks that the Tomahawk Chop is abhorrent. I mean, all of us and many, many people. And no one's talking about that at this point anymore. I don't hear it. I I think they'll they'll talk about the chop again as soon as the games start, because it was a huge topic the last time there were actually fans in Atlanta during the 2019 postseason, because the Braves famously stopped doing Mm -hmm. it for one game when a Native American player for the St. Louis Cardinals was there. So they finally admitted in a certain situation, at least that it's offensive. I don't know how they put that back in the back in the can, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But I think that the, the, the tomahawk chop thing is going to come back up. The team name is just off the table. And, and the difference is, no matter how crappy and terrible Ohio is, and believe me, as someone who's lived here for most of the last 30 years, I can tell you it is, um, there is actually in-state and certainly in Cleveland sentiment, local sentiment, fan sentiment, about the team name, about its iconography that has pressured the team. Cleveland's a very blue city, 
and uh, th- there is there is a lot of pressure there. There's no one in in Georgia very vocally yet uh, who has pressured the Braves. Again, they moved to a, a very white suburb. They have uh, surrounded themselves in a very comfortable corporate blanket, and their fan base is overwhelmingly white exurban. So there's really no pressure on them to do it. That's the difference between the the Braves' name. I mean, when they were asked about it after the Indians announced what they were doing, uh, the, the Braves just said, "No, we're not doing it because who's going to make them?" And also the Cleveland team, or the city of Cleveland, has a much, much longer relationship with that ball team than the, than the Atlanta team city does with their team, right? I mean, they could have moved from Milwaukee and, and, and picked a, better, a different name. Of course, when they did that, they might have picked a worse Well, their name, name before but, was the know, Crackers. The, the, the minor league team was the Crackers. <laughs> I, know. I know. That's what I was thinking when I was saying that. But, but you no, know, but they could have, you know, they could have been the Rebels or something. You can imagine what they would have come up with, right? But – that argument doesn't fly. It does. I mean, Cleveland, if, if Atlanta really has no excuse to keep that name, and, and Tobe was right, it but doesn't get the, the politics, the grievance politics that Frank just brought up. That's huge in at least that part of Georgia, in suburban Atlanta, and yeah. uh, the northern suburban Atlanta, at least. And uh, so, if anything, they're going to dig in their heels more. If 25 years ago or 30 years ago, when the Braves absolutely stunk uh, and someone brought it up, people would have been, eh, maybe we should. They could have rebranded, you know, in a positive way. Here's the way. thing, and Craig, you've written about this. There's a great name waiting for them. The Hammers, yeah. right? I mean, the Hammers, talk about a historically resonant name, you know. Uh, the Hammers, obviously referring to Henry Aaron, who just passed away. You've got a logo that you could just you could repurpose that horrible racist logo. Uh, you, you change that tomahawk to a hammer? That's a tomahawk to a hammer, and you've got a great, catchy uh, nickname. Plus, Atlanta really Hammer sounds good. There's like an internal it rhyme there. Great. You have Hammer Day at the ballpark. Give every fan a hammer. Forget that day. We're going with Hammer. Hammer Day. Yeah, they can have foam hammers like they have the foam tomahawks. And instead of that weird ersatz native chant that they do, they could, you know, just change it to something that sounds more like the Wizard of Oz or Hammer. They can embrace Norse mythology and have Thor as a mascot. Apparently, Norse, the white supremacist kind of. What happens to Noah Syndergaard? (laughs) He just hurts his elbow and then he's out again. That's what happens to Noah Syndergaard. Well, there's no question that, you know, given that Georgia, you know, notwithstanding what happened in January with the runoff election, you know, they're about the business of suppressing the vote and they will they will pick on any 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 uh, moment where the Braves um, look at me, the Atlanta baseball team's nickname comes up for discussion and then make it part of their platform of like, you see, cancel. They're going to cancel our team's name. Loeffler and Purdue uh, at the in the last week or two of the Senate run made a, a last ditch desperate effort to try to say, look, the Democrats are trying to make the Braves change their name. They, they sent out mailers and things and there were Internet uh, Facebook ads and stuff and interest groups that were aligned with the Republicans in that race were trying to link those things up because they were losing on every single issue. But, man, if we could foment a culture war issue here to try to rally people, we will. It didn't work, but they did. That issue heats up in 2022, and I'm and I'm advising a Republican candidate for senator. And I want to make what I always say in this situation: if I were advising a Republican candidate for senator, my wife would leave me, my kids would stop speaking to me, my dog would go to live with Coba, <laughs> and my mother would change the will and leave all the money to the dog. But if I were doing that, I would say if that issue heats up, I would say you wear a Braves hat at every event and a T-shirt that says Braves. That is the issue. That is. An issue. The problem is Jimmy Carter does that too to this day. Yeah, well, I mean that is an issue that swings that, that will move the white grievance. I've noticed that you've given this some thought, so you're contemplating uh, leaving your family to consult a, a Republican candidate. I, I huh? can't have another dog. Kelly Loeffler's rich, and she might run again. 
It's your favorite. I don't even like basketball as much, though. You know, if you... Okay, just to be clear for our Say It Ain't Contagious audience, Lincoln is not consulting. As of today. Hey, Republicans' money is green, too, Lincoln. Just think about and it. And they also they buy sneakers, too. That's what Michael Jordan said. Mm-hmm. I don't sell sneakers. The other interesting thing when you talk about names is the names of the stadiums. We talked about this a little bit last week with Lincoln's excellent book. And the other thing that I had wanted to bring up with Lincoln during that interview, also, we could talk about either one, but the dying out of the really great nicknames for ball players, the ones that they have right now, although actually maybe accepting Thor for Noah Syndergaard, that might be one exception, just don't have the cleverness that they used to. But let's start with the naming rights and how we can never remember the company that owns the the name to the stadiums. I don't think we should. And I, I think Craig's had a hit on this repeatedly too in his stuff over the years. I'm not being paid to say mm-hmm. prudential insurance debt. It's not even my insurance company. If you want to to pay me to, to say that where I work, I don't think I would take the money in the same way that Lincoln wouldn't take it from certain parties. <laughs> but I feel under, especially since those names change every two minutes, as soon as the if American family were to pay me money, I would call the ballpark in Milwaukee, American family ballpark, but it's going to be Miller Park or it's going to be County or New County or whatever for people who, who are used to it. And it's, it's just crazy that the, the naming rights have worked the way they have, but I think we're going to start to see a breakdown now because we're now getting on the second and third. Well, San Francisco, obviously, as you know, Lincoln has gone through like four and Oakland, God, it's been crazy. You know, once you go through two or three generations of names on one stadium, they start to break down a little bit. I I ran this the other day because uh, Petco uh, re-upped their uh, their deal with the San Diego Padres. Petco Park opened in two thousand four. It now has something like there. I think there's only like eight or nine ballparks that have had their name longer than Petco Park. Also, but doesn't that defeat the purpose? I, I really wonder, what is the economic benefit these corporations even get out of it? Is it a lot, do you think? When I used, in my old life in the corporate law world, I dealt a little bit with that. You'd see that at Ohio State. You'd see it in Cleveland. You'd see it in Cincinnati and stuff. I, I think the the big motivator, the secret motivator no one talks about is it just makes corporate people feel good. We have this relationship with this institution, this local team. We have a box. We get to rub you know, elbows with players. If I wanted to call up and have the star shortstop show up at my at my team's, you know, internal pep rally before the sales season, I could probably swing that. I think that's a lot of what happens. Uh, they make the argument that it's about brand awareness. And I think for a few of them, it probably does. I think they work probably for like the beer companies. I think they probably work for retail companies and things. I have no idea, you know, who's making their mortgage decisions, let alone their cut rate mortgage decisions on what the name of the White Sox stadium is. But I think there's a mild argument for them on a very basic level that is increasingly going away. When a team shows up at Progressive Life Stadium or whatever, the association for me with the brand is, I think, oh, whose claim did you deny today that we're, you know, I mean, there's there's just no positive association. It could be NRA Stadium, and I wouldn't feel any more negative about it. But, you know, there's another piece of this, too. I remember at one point, in the 90s, Candlestick Park, which had been Candlestick Park for 30 plus years. And while it was the worst ballpark in the major leagues for most of that time, there was a kind of begrudging affection for it in the city. You know, we called it the stick. It was home in, in many ways. And it became, I believe, three com or maybe three com park. And what struck me is exactly what you were saying, which is that that it's not just I'm not going to call it that. Now, I, I don't write baseball the way you guys do, so it doesn't really come up in my life that way. But 
is that they were, these companies are so powerful that they can actually buy language, right? That they actually, now we're going to call it some, that, that's a powerful, that's a frightening and, way. And it really it hits right. home when you see like the street signs. Like the first time I ever went to San Francisco was not too long after that. And I was, you know, either leaving the airport, going to the airport, something. And I see a brand new sign where they very clearly changed the name from Candlestick to 3Com. And I'm like, oh, well, now just as a public directional situation, I it's this corporate name. And that, then it was kind of a novelty. But you're right. They do change the language and just the way you interact with your city. And the newer people don't know it as Candlestick and 3Com. And then, of mm-hmm. course, it changes again, right? Because well, it's yeah, it, it goes city. back to a long history of when... The team was the brand, and the name of the the park was the name of the owner. It was Bush Stadium because the Bush family owned the team, and it was uh, Joe. The to me was to sports Joe Robbie Stadium, named after the owner of the Miami Dolphins, who had passed away. It was in his honor, and then they changed. They start selling off the rights, and at one point it was Pro Player Park. And that the company went belly up within the span of that season, and they had to change the name of the park again. And it's just Houston had Enron. Enron, you just took the words out of my mouth. And actually, Joe Robbie was named after that stadium was named after him while he was alive. He was still the owner of the Dolphins uh, at the time. Um, And the other thing that occurs to me about this, because you know, this is somebody who's thought about stadiums way too much. you know, folks like to wax poetic about how these new ballparks can have a sense of place and you know where you are as opposed to Riverfront Stadium and the, the cookie-cutter stadiums of yesteryear. With these corporate names changing all the time, actually, you're, you're removing the, 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 the identification and particularities of place so that these ballparks, they, they're their own type of cookie-cutter facilities. I mean, this global life field that exists now in Arlington is very similar to the, Astro, you know, the Astros Minute Maid, what's now Minute Maid Field. They're very similar. They're not that. There's no sense of place in these ballparks anymore. They're they're just as placeless as, or more so than the riverfronts and the and the vets. It it tracks the the history of ballpark naming conventions. Sort of tracks you know the history of power That's centers exactly in right. this country. And and I think in terms of the the Tigers, it was Naven Field and Briggs Stadium because it was named after who owned the team. And then, and so for, you know, the first half of the 20th century, you've got the plutocrat, the owner, the businessman, and then it's Tiger Stadium for several decades because now it's sort of an institution, right? Even though it's still privately owned, um, it's the city, it's the team, uh, you know, and, and some of those, the cookie cutter ones you mentioned, they're all, they're civic, they're civic things. It's, it's that mid-century yeah. to, to the 70s situation when you actually have some sort of legitimacy of civic and public power. And now they're all corporate. That's right. And it just completely tracks that. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a Chicken McGriddles or a McChicken Biscuit for just three bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. It goes to the architecture even too, and the, and that we have these kind of faux retro parks. And the the thing that that you've all been getting at 
you know, Ebbets Field was uh, now it was gone before I was born. But from everything that I can tell, it was a hole. It was an unpleasant place to get into and out of. It moved crowds badly. It had a small capacity. It, it had no amenities. And yet people remember it very nostalgically. And I think that that like Fenway Park, like Wrigley Field, to some extent, it evolved in response to its environment as opposed to having elements put in that simulated a a kind of environment. And as much as I do prefer the ballparks that came after Camden Yards from an aesthetic perspective compared to Veteran Stadium or Three Rivers or Riverfront or, or, or those cookie cutter parks that we just were discussing, RFK even when the the uh, the Nationals first moved to Washington, picking up where the uh, old Senators, now the Rangers, have left off. There's something Disneyland-like in them. And Disney, very famously, I, I may be getting this, this measurement wrong, but all the buildings are to five-eighth scale and use forced perspective to simulate something larger, which is cool and fun if you decided to go to, to Disneyland. I sure have. I like, happen to like Disneyland or Disney World for that matter. But it's different when you're looking for an authentic experience and you're given a pseudo experience instead. And the naming goes to that, whether of the team or the ballparks and the design as well. Daniel Rosenzweig, this academic, wrote a great book uh, that often gets overlooked. It's called Retro Ballparks, and it's an analysis of uh, Camden Yards and what was then Jacobs Field today, Progressive, whatever. And he makes this exact point that those, even Camden Yards is a manufactured experience of an industrial past, right? That doesn't cater to the laboring majority of the people who live in the city now. It caters to the affluent, gentrifying demographic that is looking to experience a kind of manufactured urban experience. And then they get on their their light rail or their, their in the case of Yankee Stadium, their, their, you know, their, their Metro North and they leave, right? So it's a very you know, manufactured experience that doesn't actually, that actually is predicated on the labor of the people who live in these cities, right? They're catering to an affluent demographic. This is something that, that, that um, Rosen's wife wrote about some time ago. And those stadiums, the, the retro stadiums, they give you all the modern and even newer than modern kind of amenities. I can't forget having to use the troughs at Tiger Stadium. That's authentic, right? You don't Fenway had that see too. that at the new ballpark, whether it's Comerica or Camden. You're not going to get to use the troughs. We tried to buy one of the troughs. <laughs> a friend of mine and I had planted flowers in it. We couldn't what a biohazard those things must have but been. You know what? Oh the first God. game I was at, at the new ballpark in San Francisco, the opening day of the new ballpark, I, at one point I went to go use the men's room. And there were a lot of, you know, the place was packed and the line was super long. And as I was waiting in what was a very long line, I got to talking, you know, with some of the other fans in the line and we all reflected it at the stick. The troughs were disgusting, but the lines moved really fast. <laughs> they're not, they're very, they're disgusting. We're very Once again, veering into an area I did not expect us to. <laughs> and that you, you could not experience, but no, thank, exactly, you're probably but thankful about that. I'm getting quite an education. <laughs> We started chanting, bring back the troll. <laughs> it's a true story. Okay. <laughs> Did we lose Craig? I thought he would have the fondest memories of the trial. Uh, yeah, I got distracted by something. Um, I Maybe I just wanted to block off the, the trough memory because my first trip to Tiger Stadium was when I was like four years old. You don't want to be short at a trough. <laughs> 
in the 1970s when no one gave a shit about anything. So, yeah, I, I had some traumatic trough memories. Between that and the okay. of the Yuppie well, Jackson Tiger Stadium, no one will forget. It was a great place to see a game. Well, Adrian and I went to a, a Tiger a Yankee game, and I think it was 1998 when the Yankees were in their glory, when they won 100-plus games and, and destroyed everybody in the postseason, culminating with the, the win over the Padres, yes, that year. I remember we went uh, – to see and we sat in the in the alpha on the lower deck and it was awesome it was absolutely awesome you know because no matter where you sat in that ballpark you felt like you were on top of the action yeah yeah people people hated the the you know obstructed view stuff but there were so few yeah. obstructed view seats relatively speaking and if you were in the front row of the upper deck you were closer That's to the right. field than any seat in any ballpark today uh it's just a fantastic place to see a game and you know they they could have kept places like that it comiskey whatever but it would have taken the sort of money that at that time was never going to go in there but that that again municipal investment uh, civic investment was not going to be a thing that happened when the corporations came and decided to fund all this stuff well we're going to build new and we're going to build it in a way that that suits our interest over the fans and that's kind of my issue with the current modern parks whereas i share your kind of curmudgeonliness i would also like those people to get off of my lawn um i, I want to just raise a question here which is that when we say in the interest of the fans we don't. We're, we we mean a very specific kind of fan. A lot of fans like these new ballparks, right? And I mean, and and they may. And the reason, sadly, may be that the baseball isn't front and center. But I don't know the data on the relative fan experience in you know 1972 at Candlestick Park compared to 2012. It's, it's going to be better now because there are more amenities. If you have. Anyone who's gone to a game with young kids knows young kids can't stay in the seats for nine inning game. And so there are things to distract your kids. There are more food choices. And literally there are more bathrooms and particularly ladies rooms because. I was going to say more women's rooms. But I'll also interject so that you hit it on the nose. I think that these parks have tried to become more family friendly. And that's that's part of the issue now. I was. I found Yankee Stadium in the 70s very family friendly. I loved it. <laughs> well, so there's a thing. Bill James wrote this thing about, Uh-oh. and he was dead on. And even though he's Bill James and he's all problematic now and everything, he's one of the guys that being on social media was a horrible <laughs> thing for him. But in his in his uh, new baseball historical abstract, he was talking about the, the ballpark experience as far as dealing with drunk, violent, un, you know, disorderly people. And and I remember this from being a kid at Tiger Stadium. It was a very, very common experience in the 70s and into the early 80s to go to any ballpark and you're dealing with people who are overserved and unruly and yeah. maybe violent. And 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 that situation was crazy common. Now it's it's so unheard of that it goes viral if anyone even gets out of line at a ballpark. I'm not saying that I miss that. I'm not saying that we should have that. The the family experience is a is a good thing, and the increase of amenities is a good thing, and the comfort is a good thing. The two things that I take big objection to are just how expensive it has now come to, to go to baseball games, whereas a, a, a lower middle class family like mine was could go family afford to a ballpark and and have it be somewhat affordable. It's completely out of the reach of someone who was in my family's economic situation in, in the late 70s and early 80s to do that. Just the prices are crazy. Uh, and it, it is aimed more at uh, a corporate environment, a, a, a wealthier environment. Uh, you, you're paying for that comfort. And uh, it is changing the nature of who of how accessible a baseball game is and to which people baseball Absolutely. games are accessible. 
You took the words out of my mouth. Accessibility. That's my that's my biggest critique of these ballparks. But of course, right? that's because the players and, are paid so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why. And 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 then the again the gross racial disparities, and you see this in a New York, you know, whether it's City Field or Yankee Stadium, right? To walk into City Field in the Jackie Robinson Rotunda, and the only black person you're going to see in the crowd are the people working there, right? I mean, like that dynamic is particular to this time, that didn't exist when we went to. Shea Stadium or the previous iterations of these of Yankee Stadium. I mean that you know that it's the disparities that get manifested every single time you walk in there that you know that that really make my blood boil. But when I go to a, a, a game and I sit in the cheap seats, which is all where I ever sit unless someone else will give me the ticket, I frequently look around and I think to myself, based on what I'm observing from the people around me, they can't afford this. And because so so in addition to what Craig and Frank are saying. This is now a culture. I mean, it's an economy that is spent, that it is kind of a lot of kind of significant consumer debt, right? So to go to a baseball game with Craig's family of four today means you're putting 250 bucks on a credit card and you're paying it out in installments. And that, that, that for me is, is a dramatic piece of this. The last game I went to at Tiger Stadium was in, uh, it was right before the strike in 1994. And I drove up from college up there and my face value of my ticket was $5 for like a center field seat. Now, granted, those were crappy seats, even at Tiger Stadium. And I don't mean to do the whole back in my day, everything was cheap and everything's expensive now, but it, it is a cultural change about who can go to games. And and like what you said, Lincoln, it, it attracts what, what everything else, you know, the standard of, a, of living in America is artificially high since the 80s because of consumer credit. And it's the same thing with baseball. And Adrian, you had a particular experience, right? Yeah. So I, w- I went into the Army right out of high school. My family, you know, we couldn't quite figure out financial aid for me going to college right out of high school. So I was in the Army on the GI Bill in the late 1980s. And when I would come home, I would buy six, eight tickets for my family my parents, my grandmother, my siblings, so that, you know, whoever could go, we would go and sit in the right field corner at Yankee Stadium. I could afford to treat the family. As a professor, to sit in the same section of Yankee Stadium, it costs, for that same number of people, it would cost probably close to a 1000 bucks when you come into the parking, the, the concessions, the food, and the tickets. And that's like ridiculous. And you're not even factoring in medical care for what you get. <laughs> exactly. And to be fair, and to be fair, this is not just Major League Baseball. This is all professional leagues, the NBA, NFL, forget about it. And that's why we just all need to start going to WNBA games. Those of us who like basketball, even if you don't, just go. And it's not just attending. It's not just attending. It's it's watching on TV because now you need cable tiers and packages. And as things go to streaming, you're going to need multiple ones if you're a fan of multiple sports. So it's becoming more expensive to, to follow your team, even if you don't go to the games. And so overall, the game is increasingly becoming something that is far more accessible to people of means and far less accessible to people without means. You know, my math is not great, but given everything that we're talking about, the the one part that confuses me and this goes back to something we talked about a, a couple of shows ago, which was the the Kevin Mather rant that got him chased out of Seattle. As uh, as Adrian was just saying, if you look at each ballpark, each team, depending on the city, a family of four going to the game will cost uh, or spend a certain amount of money per that visit on average. So for Seattle Mariners games, since we were talking about that, a family of four will drop 
about 250 bucks on average. I think they're one of the, they're in the middle somewhere. That's I assume for not like the top tier ticket, but sitting somewhere in the middle or the upper deck, you buy a couple of hot dogs, you buy a foam finger, you drop 250 bucks. So if the Mariners have a top prospect like Jared Kelenic and they put him in the lineup and they improve their attendance by only four, I mean, it's a lot, right? But 400,000, that's $25 million right there, which is much more than Jared Kelnick is likely to get in year four, three, four, five, whatever of, of his of his contract that he's going to get by going to arbitration a year early by hitting free agency a year early. It seems like it would more than pay for itself, but instead they not only forego that additional revenue, but they give the fans a, a, a worse experience. And so it seems to me that it, it's, it's a, a self-deprecating policy. Well, it's going back to the naming rights. Where does that money go? The company paying this corporate big corporation paying whatever it pays. I don't even know how much do they usually pay? Tens of millions of dollars. They're they're not as big as you oh, yeah? think. I mean, it's a a couple of million a year over usually or usually over like ten or years or twenty years, and it's only a couple of million. It just goes to the the team's general fund. Just pay. Yeah, but a if I'm a huge it. corporation, actually, that sounds like a good deal. Yeah, they're probably pretty good deals for the company. I mean, I I don't know if they're good deal. They're good deals in that they're cheap, and they're good deals in that it keeps the executives happy. Like I mentioned before, with with tickets and perks and associations and things. I don't know if you can quantify it. I don't know if anyone's ever quantified it as far as sales and stuff. I, I question whether it even works out on those small amounts. How about stuff being the official whatever, whatever of Major League Baseball? <laughs> I'll tell you something. We could probably do a whole other podcast on that When right I was now. going back and forth before the pandemic between D.C. and Cambridge, I was so I, I could take either JetBlue or Delta. And JetBlue is the official airplane of the Boston Red Sox. And I, I seriously thought twice. I, th- I mean, there was a big price difference, so I usually gave in. Hi, I'm Nick Markakis. Are you having a colonoscopy? <laughs> then use Fleet, the official enema of Major League Baseball. I don't know why I picked on Nick Markakis there. But... I don't know how you, you picked out the leading brand name of enema so quickly off the top of your head. Is... We are about the same age, so... <laughs> But one one thing that, that 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 is notable is that the reason these prices are so expensive is because MLB has kept major league base access to major league baseball as a scarce resource. We have there hasn't been expansion in twenty years. The population has seating capacities have shrunk in stadiums. Seating capacities have shrunk, and if we added ten teams, prices would go down. And I think the quality of play would be not would be oh, the overwhelming majority of fans wouldn't notice a change in the quality. of not that we're going to add ten teams, but that's a way to think about it. This is how, and that's exactly uh, why it won't happen because it would exactly it spread happen, the wealth to more people, and the thirty owners wouldn't like that. Not just the wealth, but the enjoyment of the game. Yep. So now that we have uh, talked about all the important things about baseball stadiums, including all the details of every men's room of every stadium, we will hear more in-depth analysis of the men's restrooms in the Texas stadiums <laughs> next week when we hear from and interview the great. Frank Ritty, about his new book. What's it called, Frank? The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. It's going to be great. Uh, that will be next week at the same same time, same channel. I guess not. This is a podcast. But I'll let you, as always, Steve, really close us out with one of your brilliant yet hokey send-offs. <laughs> I was going to give you a little more detail about stadium men's rooms and the... the... <laughs> 
because we really haven't scratched the surface. Actually, I'll even stay out of the men's room. I used to, if I got a press pass to old Yankee Stadium and you you walk through the dugout, there was this sort of squishy material at the bottom of the dugout. And you could just tell as you walked on it that the expectorant, the spit of Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth was still somewhere under your feet and trying to ooze up from under the ground as you put pressure on it. As Tova said, we have come to the end of another episode of Say It Ain't Contagious, and certainly troughs and incorrectly administered enemas would be most likely contagious. We recommend that you do not do those things. Please do not say that we suggested that. You are taking that on yourself should you choose to do so. We very much would hope that in the spirit of, well, troughs and enemas, that you would go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe We are the only sports podcast that covers important grounds like these that we have discussed today. Please let your friends know about it. All of the above will help the show gain attention, help us to continue to do things. You can also follow us on Twitter at S-I-A-C-Pod. I got it right that time. That is our Twitter address. We do promote new shows there and the occasional other stuff we would be very happy to hear from you. So once again, next week, we will return with the partial panel and Frank's new book on, well, messing with Texas, actually. I just enjoy saying that. And so on that note, allow me to say on behalf of Lincoln, Frank, Craig, Adrian Tova, and myself, take it, but take it easy. While we're talking about it, like, guys, he jingled again. Pablo, get out. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's My fine. sister's still being quiet. No, I just, I'm sorry. Now he's lying on his Never back. Never going to stigmatize a dog. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a Shakespearean actor. Oh, woe is me. Wherefore are thy claims help when I had a defender bender? Pardon the interruption, but when you file a claim with Geico, your claims team will be in touch right away. But willest they forget about me later when thou needest updates? Um, no. They'll always be there to, um, helpeth you out. Well, I suppose that I should bemoan something else, like my lactose intolerance. Oh, why must Derry disagree with me so savagely? Geico, great service without all the drama. <laughs> Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.